When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to another episode of Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mental health and life by providing you with simple scientific and practical tips, tools and strategies. In this episode, I discuss all things cults, psychopaths, sociopaths, narcissists, cult recovery and more with psychologist Rachel Bernstein. Rachel specializes in helping victims of cults recover and find freedom. She also works extensively with those who have suffered abuse from sociopaths, psychopaths, and narcissists. Rachel shares some great tips on how to identify these toxic people, how to help them, and if it is even possible to help them, what the difference is between psychopaths and sociopaths, why people join cults, and so much more. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends and family on social media. Now, on to today's episode. Dr. Rachel Bernstein, what an honor and privilege to have you on my podcast. Your work is fascinating and I'm very, very, very thrilled to talk about this very important subject with you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be on. And yes, you can certainly call me Rachel. And I would love to be able to get into this subject with you. I'm, of course, fascinated by (laughs) these subjects. And I'm happy to know other people are as well. So I can't wait to get started. That's fantastic. Well, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself that's not in your bio um, and why you do what you do and what motivates you, what got you to where you are today? You know, that kind of thing. So, yes, what's not on my bio is usually what's most telling about people and what their motivators were. From That's why when, I asked that question. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's true. That's when you get to know a person better. What was very interesting for me was I grew up in a family that was sort of a cause family that had a background in kind of asking the the question, and therefore... So here there's an issue, and therefore, what are we going to do about it? Or what can be done about it? And so there were a lot of rallies and a lot of posters made and a lot of signs and a lot of excitement about taking on a particular cause. But also, really at its base, it was about, I think across the board with each cause, about justice and about human rights and about helping people maintain their freedom or regain their freedom. And I feel like I have continued on with that theme in my work because while I'm an educator and a therapist, so much of what I talk about is helping people regain their freedom and their rights and their ability to think and to make decisions and to feel safe within the world and within their relationships. Oh, I love that. That's so well said. That came from from a lifestyle that you grew up in. That's kind of that you fostered now into a career and now you're helping all these people, which is wonderful. But now you're an expert on helping victims of cults and emotional abusers and narcissists and manipulators and so on. And this is very topical. People are talking about this kind of thing so much. So can you tell us more? Start with the big picture and then we can dive into a little bit of detail. So... Where would you like to start? Do you want to start with just telling us a bit about what you do in in, in that area? And then we can talk maybe about how we can unpack that. 
Sure, sure. So when I became licensed, I had already kind of grown up in a family that knew a little bit about cults, which is not such a common subject at dinner table, because there had been a family member who had gotten involved in one. And uh, we saw this really immediate personality and behavioral changes that were alarming. And also at the time, there really weren't resources. There there was no one to call to try to get help, to try to figure out what this was about. And a lot of people would respond, people who were professionals would respond by saying, well, this person is, you know, making a choice to get involved in something and you just have to let her have her freedom to make that choice. But there was something that was gnawing at us about that because it didn't seem like it was her choice. It seemed like she felt like she was left without a choice. And that was the pivotal piece for us. What could this thing be that could take away people's ability to make choices for themselves, give them the guise that they were making the choice, but really saying, you know, if you don't get involved in this, your life is going to be down a horrible spiral. And the only way to keep it on track or the only way to be safe or the only way to have a relationship with God or whatever it's touting is by doing this. So then at that point, are you making a choice or by default, do you feel like you have to stay involved? So I started noticing on my college campus years ago that there were these front groups for different cultic groups that were right there on campus recruiting people. And I knew as soon as these students got involved, they weren't going to be in school much longer. And that's what would happen. Suddenly they would disappear. But the school didn't do anything to stop it because they didn't really know that this was a thing. <laughs> this is something to watch out for. And I felt so bad for the student and also their parents who had worked so hard to get them to this point, only to have them kind of taken away. Sucked into something. Yeah. Yeah. Have their whole life sidelined or really other opportunities taken away from them without their knowledge or full consent. And then I started working at a place in Los Angeles called the Cult Clinic, which is now no longer. It was shut down uh, by a lot of pressure from Scientology, actually. That's, that's unfortunate, isn't it? That's very unfortunate, isn't it? Very unfortunate. And another unfortunate piece was early on, I was on the board of something called the Cult Awareness Network, which was which actually was sued into oblivion for a lot of frivolous lawsuits, 40, as a matter of fact, by Scientology, enough where they had to file for bankruptcy and then Scientology purchased their name. So now if you call the Cult Awareness Network, you will be talking to a Scientologist. That's crazy. Yeah. So it was a lot of sort of, you know, the uh, people in sheep's clothing and, you know, cloak and dagger that it started to also make me think that this is just not right. And so worked at the cult clinic, moved to New York, worked at a place called the cult hotline and clinic, and then came back to LA and have been doing this in my private practice and running also support groups for former cult members and the families and friends of people in situations that are very unhealthy for them and are trying to figure out ways to get them out and I'm helping people do in interventions, non-forcible interventions to help their loved ones get out. And then I have this podcast that I started called Indoctrination, which is sort of, you know, encapsulating this work, but also where I've gone into, which is also helping people involved in human trafficking and also in relationships with malignant narcissists. Because I've noticed the outcome of that, the after effects of that are very similar to having been involved in a cult. Wow, how fantastic that you've so become so specialized and you're able to help people because this is really very specific, a very specific issue that we're dealing with here. And it's, yeah. you know, you've really got to know what you're saying and what you're talking about. So, you know, that's fantastic that you've become so specialized. So, I mean, you're an expert in this. And just talk, talk a little bit more about how... It, it, you said that you, you help people to get to recover, to recognize, to get out of it. Where do you want to start? Right. Well, yeah, there's so many different directions to take this in, but. Well, maybe, maybe start with the cults, maybe start with a big thing and then let's unpack it down into, you know, narcissism and then manipulators, which is kind of on the other side of the scale, which is more likely that people will encounter on a daily basis. Whereas cults is quite an, ex it's probably more than we realize, but it's more of an exceptional thing. So maybe talk about the cults first, how people get sucked into it, how you mentioned that they feel like they have to stay and can't get out of it. And then how can you get someone out of it? And how do, what is, what do you do to help them recover? 
Right. Okay. So when people get involved in a cult, they often don't know that that's what they're involved in because they didn't go out to join a cult. They went to go take a class to help them develop more self-esteem, or they went to a yoga studio that happened to be a cultic group, and you don't find out until you reach the upper levels that the leader thinks he's the Messiah and you need to bow 300 times to him every time he walks in the room. But, you know, that's not in the brochure. So there are people who get involved in cults really because they wanted to get involved in something more spiritual or I've noticed more than anything, they wanted to feel a sense of belonging and connection. And so the teachings may have been a little off for what they were looking for, but still they had this sort of instant community and what we call love bombing. And it felt so good and you felt connected that you kept going. And immediately when you get involved in a cult, there is that excitement releases this sort of adrenaline and also endorphins. And so you have this sort of chemical release in your body similar to a drug and you feel like you need to go back and they will tell you right away, this is the only way. This is the only way for you to be happy. This is the only way for you to have a relationship with God. This is the only way for you to have the answers. This is the only way for you to live eternally. What, you know, whatever you are sort of potentially looking for, this is your only route. And so then you don't want to fail your only opportunity. And then they will prey on your conscience. We're doing wonderful things, or we have the potential to build what we have here so that we can share it with the rest of the world. Don't you care about people? Don't you care about the rest of the world? Don't you care about your own happiness? Why would you stop going now? Why would you not do what we're telling you to do to bring in more money or to bring in more members? And you're off and running right away. And then they prioritize your life. So your commitment to the group is more important than your commitment to anything or anyone else from the start. And so everything else goes on the B list, so to speak, including sometimes your own health and well-being. But you are then sucked in and you will then feel that you can't leave because the answer or immortality or whatever is right around the corner. You're about to get there. Just if you take that next level, if you take the other class, if you show your devotion by bringing in 10 new members or $10,000, then you'll get what we're offering you. And so this sense that you can't stop now because the miracle is just about to happen keeps you going and keeps you stuck. And so a lot of people will go also because they think it's going to solve an issue for them if they're dealing with any kind of anxiety. And now, you know, a lot of people are getting involved in groups that are recruiting online because of the virus. There are a lot of groups recruiting now because of this and also a lot of new conspiracy theories out there that I also try to track. Yeah, those are horrendous and limitless. There's just a limitless amount of them. But I think that people feel very calmed by feeling like they're getting the answer. So, so that's so that's the initial kind of sucking in motive is if you join us, we're going to be your community. We love you. We've got the answer. We can solve. So that so people are obviously looking for something. The people that join a cult is there some? Mm-hmm. Would you have you identified once they once you work with them once they get out of the cult? Is there a sort of missing? Is there a little hole somewhere in their psyche that's that this is meeting a need initially? Right. So it's a great question. There there are a lot of people who I've worked with over the years of doing this now, 29 years. So I've worked with thousands of people who have been involved in in groups like this. And I and I guess the message to them, I hope that this will come through, is for them not to feel shame about this because people get involved for really valid reasons. It's it's the people who take advantage of you knowingly are the ones who should feel shame, but usually they're too narcissistic to be able to feel shame. So you're the ones carrying it. But sometimes there is something missing and sometimes it is just being able to anchor to a belief system, having something that gives you the answer. Especially when you're exploring, like when you first go to university, the world's suddenly open and you're just exploring and it can be quite overwhelming. I can imagine that that would be a very vulnerable point and very easy to recruit people. Right. Exactly right. And so there are also people who just are not, mm, how do I say this? They're not as streetwise. 
as other people. They don't pick up on certain red flags that we might notice if we were not so needing something or needing somebody. In retrospect, they notice the red flags when it's sort of pointed out. And yeah, they did have kind of a strange feeling about this or about that. And they weren't sure they trusted that person, but they ignored it. You're also taught to ignore that within a cult, that if you're having any negative reaction to anything, that's you, that's your negative energy, or that's the devil, or that's you getting in the way of yourself. So you're taught to ignore it. But going back to what you said about college campuses, Sometimes when people ask me what kind of person gets involved in a cult, they're usually idealistic and, and bright and wanting something more for themselves, or wanting to handle the emotions that they have that come up from just being a human being, the sort of existential not knowing and wanting to know. But the answer is not sometimes what these people are like, but when the recruitment happened. Because they will say just the year before, if they were living at home and everything was fine or they were still dating that same person before they broke up, they would not have been as attracted to the message, to the recruiter, to the poster they saw, to the site online. And so it was more of an issue of timing for a lot of people. Okay. So what what's interesting now with the timing issues with the you saying that now with the COVID-19 issue, there's so many, a lot of recruiting happening online. And I think this is a significant thing that you've pointed out. I didn't even think about that. And I think it's something, can you just give some guidelines on what to be aware of? So some red flags so people don't get sucked in because people are very vulnerable and very frightened at the moment. And as you and I both know, some of the things that are going around are crazy. Oh, yes. So unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately, with human nature, sometimes we think the crazier an idea is, the more specialized and valid it is, because we haven't heard of that. And so maybe only a small number of people are really getting this information, this inside information. And so you're, a lot of people won't dismiss it as crazy. They'll think, ooh, this is kind of interesting. I don't even quite understand it, which also makes sometimes People feel that there's something very sophisticated about it because we don't understand it, but it really is that it doesn't make sense. <laughs> so so that gets forgotten about. That's actually why a lot of cults have their own lingo and it doesn't always make sense. And the cult leader can say things that are kind of a word salad and you think that it's this sort of message from on high, but it's that he's delusional. So yeah, so online now, there are a lot of these Insta cures and magic cures and so you can buy any number of products, now thousands. And then you can also be told that if you are, become a believer of a certain kind of technique or a certain guru or a certain pastor, then you will be safe. And there's a built-in safety net for them, but not for you. They protected, but you not. you the vulnerable one because they can go and hide, but, or maybe they can't. Maybe they'll get caught. But the person getting sucked into that is, is very vulnerable. Right. And, and the safety net is also this other piece, which is that most cult leaders, not all, but most, you know, snake oil salesmen and women and cult leaders have a narcissistic bent. And along with a narcissistic bent, what you have is that basically this idea, if you have a problem with what I'm doing, that's your problem. And if I'm offering you the answer and it doesn't work, that's because you made sure it didn't work. There's something wrong with you or faulty with you. You weren't trying hard enough. You weren't believing enough. You weren't praying hard enough. You weren't clearing your passageways enough to let this energy in. It's on you always. So they can say and promise anything they want. And so that's a very good, what you've just said so incredibly well there, is a very good guideline. If someone is making you feel like that you're wrong if you can't get it, that they're right. That's exactly how you described it. That's a red flag. Yes, it's a red flag. Another red flag is this closed loop of information. Don't ask other people about this because anyone who criticizes this is someone who's getting in the way of you being protected. They have something to gain by you not getting this protection that I'm offering you. So let's keep it a secret. And then you can't check it out. Don't go online and check the reviews that other people have given because they just have a cross to bear. And they, they're people who are just trying to take us down because they're jealous of what we can offer you. So people are kept in the dark and they can't get the ability to use opposing information or their critical 
thinking. So that's another red flag. If someone controls your access to information about it, you want to leave that kind of limited access to somebody else. Absolutely. That's yeah. such a good guideline because if someone is stopping you checking the facts or isn't wanting to connect because the most natural thing that humans have is to connect and share. I mean, look what's happening in general across the world is how across country, across cultures, across borders, people are sharing information to try and solve the problem. And as an epidemiologist I interviewed the other day, he said that this is the first time in human history that we collectively as humanity are facing the same enemy and how we come in together collectively, most people to solve it. So if someone is outside of that if, if they're telling you that they have the solution and this is the answer and that's the only way and don't look anywhere else that's such a red flag because that's just so that goes so against the natural grain of anything no one knows everything you should always be checking the facts and always be gathering data right always always and there are many techniques of influence that you want to be aware of in fact there is a great book by a man robert cialdini who talked about the power of influence and persuasion from a business model but he spoke at different cult conferences because he could see they were all used by leaders, by even within controlling and manipulative relationships. So there's this idea where you have to make a decision right then. You know, don't delay. This offer is only available for a short amount of time and only available to a certain amount of people. It's the idea of scarcity. And so then you feel like you can't actually take time because this offer is not going to be available. It's like if you were to watch a, a shopping network on television or online, and they will say that they only have a certain amount of bracelets left and you, you know, you have to order by midnight. I mean, if you're savvy enough, you'll notice they play the exact same thing the next morning and the next day and the next night, right? <laughs> but yeah, so there's this idea that you have to jump on this opportunity now and make your commitment and give your credit card information. And any group or any person that tells you you have to make a decision on the spot, and if you don't, then you're forfeiting that opportunity. You also want to walk away because it's inherently disrespectful to not give people an opportunity to think and to do some research and get back to you. Mm, that's that's such that's just such basic good information. Fantastic. I love that. Okay. Any more red flags, or can we move on to digging a little deeper? With I want you to I want you to actually talk about the difference between cults. Because it seems like there's almost scales of cults where they're real serious ones to mm -hmm. like almost little mini ones from what I'm hearing you saying that this cult concept is actually quite prevalent amongst sort of religious movements and all kinds of movements where, where you've just described the different sort of factors. But then you've got your emotional abuser, you've got your narcissist, you've got your manipulator, also obviously on a scale. So can mm -hmm. you maybe try and differentiate between those like a cult leader versus emotional abusers and narcissists and manipulators? Cult leaders are all of those to the extreme from what I'm understanding. But we do encounter those others quite frequently and sometimes have even those characteristics in our own personality from time to time. Right. Yeah. So, you know, cult leaders don't do anything that the rest of society doesn't do, but, you know, they do it on a larger scale. They usually have not invented the techniques that they're using. They've just learned to hone them and to perfect them. And cult leaders will often learn from other cult leaders. I mean, they'll learn from Mao Zedong. They'll learn from people who who are able to take over whole countries. And they want to know what's going to work to get people in line and to get people to feel like they have to listen or else. And so what's interesting about cults is that they come in so many different forms and cult leaders also come in so many different forms. So there are men and women who are cult leaders and sometimes a cult can be a very small group of people. And some of the very controlling relationships that I've come across, they sort of fall under this heading of one-on-one -on -one cult. It's like, to a certain degree, this very, very intensive experience actually within a cult because you can't share any of the stress or the tasks or the pressure on you with anyone else. It's all on you. And so that can actually make people crack, these one-on-one -on -one cults. And sometimes cult leaders 
are just not quite capable of being in touch with reality. And in those kinds of smaller cults or one-on-one cults, you have more of a folia deux, you have more of a shared psychosis. You'll sometimes see that in some cults where, like with Heaven's Gate in San Diego years ago, where the leader believed that the mothership was coming behind a comet. He really did, as far as we can tell, believe that. And so other people jumped into his psychosis and people who were vulnerable to that, and they all ended up dying, believing they were leaving their bodies, going to the mothership. So I don't think that he had in mind that he wanted to siphon money off of people and pull them away from their families. I think he really thought that he was giving them this alternate life and this possibility. But you still want to watch out for groups, even if the leader isn't this sort of knowing charlatan, because it can wind up the way it wound up in Heaven's Gate. And then you have the other ones who really know from the start that they are charismatic. They are kind of Pied Pipers. They have a gift, unfortunate gift, because they don't have the conscience to go along with it, where people will listen to what they say. And they can intimidate people and keep them in line. And they're very smart at reading people. And also not only being able to read individuals, but they know how to use group psychology to keep people trying hard, feeling like they want to not be the only one seeming within a group of people like that they're not getting it. Everyone is sort of smiling and looking excited because they don't want to be the only one sort of targeted as seeming like they're not quite succumbing to the control. So there's so much that happens that a cult leader does that creates a system That is this very intense system that people then are not able to break away from very easily at all. And as a lot of people have described it, while they thought they were moving ahead, they were just on a hamster wheel and they're not any farther in their lives. They haven't actually learned very much of anything that's helpful in real life. They've just done all the tasks that they're told to shown their devotion, prove their allegiance by saying goodbye to their friends and families, sacrificed everything, including sometimes their health or whatever they had in the bank, and all for naught, because they're not any farther. They just satisfied the ego of the leader repeatedly. Mm, that's terrible. So so how would you distinguish? Okay, now that's very clear. Someone who's an emotional abuser where it's a bit more insidious or a narcissist where it's a bit more insidious, so manipulators so, and so on. Right. So narcissists, I find, I mean, because there are a lot of cult leaders who are narcissists. Yeah, when it would you be. Find, yes. So it's a hazard. One of the things that's helpful when people leave cults is that I'll, I'll say, you know, I'm happy to teach you about what a cult is and undue influence and manipulation, but let's talk about narcissism for a moment and see if you can come up with examples in your mind of your cult leader. And they just, they start writing copious notes. <laughs> yes, this too. Yes, 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 yes. Check, check, check. And so when you have someone who is a narcissist who zeroes in on one individual, then you have a situation where someone becomes their prey and instead they feel that they are being specially chosen by someone who is sort of electrifying and comes across like they could be with anyone, but they've chosen to be with you. So you feel special. But early on, and people will tell me this afterwards, there were things that they picked up on that they should have paid attention to but they were too busy being kind of happy and charmed by being with this person who could charm anyone. What I've noticed from people who have been in relationships with narcissists is that they were given this sense early on that the narcissist has an external social persona that is nothing like how they are behind closed doors. And so you can feel very much alone when you're being emotionally abused or physically abused by a narcissist because everyone else thinks they're great. And then they think you're being just a complainer or you're crazy because they don't see any sign of it. And narcissists are very good at putting on a show, 
very, very good. In fact, they can be more charming than anyone in the room. They also need to have you feel like if they no longer wanted you, they could leave you at any time and replace you at any time. And then you would never find someone as sort of fill in the blank, charming, handsome, (laughs) attractive as them. So you might as well stay with them. Narcissists also have you keep their bad behavior a secret and will intimidate you into silence. Some people I know who were in relationships with narcissists said that they were kept up till all hours of the night or morning being given a speech just because they said maybe instead of yes when they were told to do something. And that was enough for the narcissist to get a narcissistic injury and then need to attack you back for what felt like an attack on them. So that intensity and that threat of being punished is something that from very early on causes great behavior modification. But the other thing I guess I want people to to know as a red flag, and you're not necessarily going to pick up on it, and this is the unfortunate part, is that, again, as people look back, I'll sometimes say, when did you first meet this person? Or tell me about your first couple of times together or your first couple of dates. And they'll talk about how wonderful it was. They were taken to a fancy place and the person was so attractive and they felt so special. But then there's this hesitancy and then there is this memory of somehow feeling bad about themselves. And to try to understand what that's about, a narcissist is a very clever kind of conduit for passive aggression. And they will make a little mm, comment and then say it's a joke. Like you can order anything on the menu and then you say, really? Okay. And then you order something and then they'll talk about how they really didn't think you were someone who was so wasteful with money or with someone who would take advantage of someone. But it's okay. It's okay. You know, it's just our first date. I understand. Enjoy. Enjoy what you ordered. Wow. So this is underlying sarcasm and underlying whole tone of, yeah. Right. And then you also will feel like you need to apologize for things that somehow you did something. You're not even quite sure what it is. But they will have you apologize to them because it feels good that you said something and they took an offense. I mean, narcissists test you from the beginning. Someone I I worked with who said that he came to me because he's a narcissist and he wanted to be able to get some help. I actually learned the most from him. And he once said to me, I know who my next boyfriend who's gay. I, I know who my next boyfriend is going to be by what happens when I bump into them. And I said, do you mean run into them? Like see someone you know? And he said, no, actually literally bump into them. Because if I bump into someone knocking them off balance and they apologize, that's my next boyfriend. Uh, Someone he can control. Someone he can control and someone who will take responsibility for something that happens to them. Ah, wow. Oh, that's amazing. Everyone is feeling more on edge these days with the uncertainty of the pandemic. Experts worry that the stress we're feeling during this time will lead to more mental health issues and that will be the next curve you'll need to worry about. Luckily, there are things we can invest in in our homes like infrared saunas from Sunlighten. A clinical trial found that infrared heat by increasing core body temperature help with mild to moderate depression in unmedicated patients. There's nothing better than a 30 to 40 minutes in the comfortable heat that provides so many relaxation benefits. I use my infrared sauna every day. Learn more about Sunlighten saunas and their mental and physical benefits at sunlighten.com slash drcarolineleaf. By mentioning my name, you will also get a special discount of $600 off your purchase. off a sauna and $500 off shipping. The link and offer details are in the show notes. So what is the difference between a narcissist and someone who may just be a little self-centered or selfish? You've kind of explained it, but if you can just unpack that as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a great question because there are so many things that sort of overlap and merge. And so, yes, there is going to be crossover, but there are also these important distinctions. So somebody who is self-centered 
can be annoying, can be obnoxious, can forget to ask you about your day, in fact, might not even care about your day, will potentially use up your resources, eat the last of something delicious in your fridge and, you know, drain your bank account because just because they wanted that, whatever that was, and they feel ultimately entitled. But what's really interesting is that there's a difference with narcissism because, for example, I'll highlight it in this way. If you are talking about how you had a difficult day to someone who is self-centered, they might retort with, oh, oh, you know, they'll interrupt you because whatever story you're telling is going on too long because it's keeping time away from them being able to talk. So they'll jump in and they'll say, oh, that's nothing. And then they'll tell you about their day. That's the self-centered. But if you, let's say, come home and you ha- you're with someone who's a narcissist and you start talking about your day, the narcissist will use this very kind of insidious way of making you feel like you've done something tremendously wrong. And so instead of saying, oh, that's nothing and telling you about their day, they might say something like, huh, interesting. Did you really think it was right to come home and be so selfish that you needed to take this time to just talk about your day? So they make you feel terrible. They undervalue you as a person versus the the, the self-centered person. It's just they're not really interested in hearing about. They just want to talk about themselves. Whereas this person turns it on you and makes you feel bad about yourself. And it's intentional. Right. And they're going to teach you a lesson about you. And once again, you go back into feeling like you, you did something you need to apologize for. What is interesting, too, about them is that It's not that they are just so self-centered that they're busy thinking about themselves. A lot of narcissists are actually not just not interested in you, but they might not be capable of caring about you. It's an actual, I think, disconnect. And so your value to them is not just based on you being a human being. It's in how much you feed their kind of never totally satiated ego. So your value is just sort of how you pour into them, even though they have a sieve inside, so it never totally gets filled. But your pain doesn't matter. Your day doesn't matter. None of it matters. And so you're very much alone in a relationship with a narcissist. So so then I need to ask you, how do we protect ourselves and those that we love from predators, toxic personalities, narcissists, destructive organizations, all these kind of things. How can we start to protect ourselves and our loved right, ones? Right, right. So it's a very good thing because what you want to be able to do in order to protect yourself is you need to w- know what to watch out for. And for people listening to, there is there is something that's important to point out. I've now seen what if if a couple walks into my office where one of them says, you know, they call me and they said, oh, I'd really like to meet with you with my whomever, spouse, partner, because I really feel like they have this narcissistic side to them. And I, I, I would love to be able to see if our relationship can be worked on, if it's even possible. I'll sometimes know when the couple walks in by if, if one of them is very put together and polished and the other one looks haggard and exhausted because one of them is sort of the host. If you think about it, just in terms of someone siphoning off energy from someone. And so if they're these sort of parasitic people, they're getting filled up and you can see it. They have rosy cheeks and they're, they had time to take a shower. But, you know, the people they're with are, are really looking like 20 years older suddenly. And so sometimes I, I can have a view on that from that. And that's something for people to watch out for if they see that in their relatives or friends. And the next part is, For people to watch out, and this is hard, that if something just seems too good to be true, if a person seems too good to be true too quickly, if you are on a high after meeting with them right away, beware. The other part is that narcissists and controllers, if they can't control you right away through their charm, if you're kind of savvy about that and, oh, you're not going to be drawn in, they'll find another way. and. The other way that you're not expecting is that they will play on your conscience. So if a narcissist is trying to use her charm and you say, okay, nice try, you know, stop, that doesn't work with me, they might then go into 
this story of victimization, that they have been sort of these unsung heroes in people's lives or in their own life, and people have never fully understood them. And they will tap into the part of you that's protective, that wouldn't want to abandon them. They'll tell a story of having been abandoned in the past, and you don't want to be yet another person who abandons them. And so if you suddenly notice that switch, that they start telling these stories from when they're young, and you're feeling like it's your job to protect them, but also to not be yet another person in their life who leaves them, then also take a moment away. Because that was that with that intensity, anything that's with that intensity, you want to take a moment away and wonder what that was about. And wonder too how many times that person has crafted stories to make sure that they get you and they they get you to care about them and feel kind of stuck because you would feel guilty leaving them. Such incredibly brilliant advice. I mean, that's really insightful and good tips that people can look out for. Just those three tips alone that you've explained, it's like a toolbox that people can actually use to measure a relationship. It's hard because they're not things that you're going to be aware of on the spot. It takes a moment to to think about it. Similar to creepiness. There are a lot of people who've gotten involved with people where at first they just found them creepy. They didn't want them to talk to them, and the, but suddenly they're connected with them and no one understands why. And their defenses were lowered. They were made to feel guilty for being cynical or being superficial about them in some way. But you want to pay attention to your initial response, that very initial response that makes you say, oh, something's not right. Yeah. Yeah. Something is Something is not right. The other thing that happens and you want to you, you want to make sure to watch out for this is that narcissists will try to rewrite your history. And what I mean by that is narcissists don't usually share very much accurate information about themselves. They've crafted, again, a persona. And they do, though, ask you very leading questions. And in an attempt to get you to be only devoted to them and only trust them and only dependent on them. And so if you can tell stories about your childhood, they will often, let's say, say, hmm, seems like, you know, when your father let you ride your bike without training wheels and you fell, you know, that could have been on purpose. Oh, gosh. So they start putting extra little historical bad advice in there. Right. So people will stay sometimes with the narcissist because they actually believe that there's nobody else out in the world for them anymore because the narcissist has made them not trust everyone else and only trust them. Usually narcissists and cult leaders will reverse things 180 so that they're the only ones who can be trusted. They're the ones freeing you from your controllers out there. And that's linked into emotional abuse, into manipulation. I mean, those three words are just all tied into each other. So I have to ask this yeah. question because I know people that sure. are listening now, you've given these six, five or six signs, and we can summarize those in a moment. But how do you now, how do you help someone recover? So here you've got someone who's with you in your practice and they have been exposed to all of this. How do you help someone recover as a therapist? And then how can you support that person as a family member or loved one or friend or whatever? It's hard when people are wanting to recover from this because they have shame. And again, like I said, it should be the ones who knowingly did this to you who should be carrying around the shame, but that's not the way that they're wired, so they're not going to. So it falls to you, but there's nothing that you did. You just succumbed to a well-oiled machine of manipulation. And that just means you're a human being. Yeah, very nice. I like that how you said that. And so what you want to do is you want to connect with others, reconnect with people, even if you've been made to feel like you can't trust them anymore, your family and friends who were not in support of your relationship, especially they're going to be demonized the most. You want to connect with others who have been in relationships like this. So you realize you're not alone. You're not the only one. You want to understand what happened to you. You want to understand the techniques of manipulation and influence 
and what makes a narcissist tick and how a cult actually will control you and how the social pressure was there to keep you in and how there was fear induction about leaving all of it so that you really feel educated. So as a process, if I may ask you this, sorry, is just to interrupt you. So it's kind of a process of if I hear number one tip and advice or strategy is to reconnect with those people that were wary in the beginning because they saw something that you didn't, that you maybe subconscious, non-consciously were aware of, but they sought very deliberate deliberately is to reach back out to them and talk through the process. And then the other thing is to get education, taking your particular experience and then understanding that in light of all the things pretty much that you've been saying in terms of describing what someone who is a narcissist, emotional abuser, manipulator, leader of a cult, etc., what they do. So the general principles and then attaching your experience to that. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly right. Yes. And I think when people get information about how a narcissist works and why they do what they do, then you don't feel like you were foolish as much because you realize this is what they do. And what you want to be able to do, too, is realize that you're still going to have a draw back to them, no matter how much you suffered. There was some appeal and there was some charisma. There was something that was very much like a drug and you're going to get pulled back emotionally and you have to be able to stay strong. And for those out there listening who have tried to help someone or rescue someone from this kind of relationship, if they go back in, don't be punitive. Expect that that's going to happen potentially once or twice. And then each time, give them a non-judgmental response and a safe place to land to come back out and be patient with that because it takes some doing. But I think that it's also very important for people who leave something like this to not tell the narcissist what you're planning, that if you're planning to leave, because you'll be talked out of it, and to be very consistent because narcissists will look for when your boundary is being lowered. Anyway, they have another way in. And so if you're shaky in your way of talking to them and you can't resist their charm, don't talk to them. And so keep yourself strong, keep your message consistent or break off from them totally. And don't let them know ahead of time what you're planning because really so many people have been talked into staying because of that instead of just going. But most importantly, I think, remember that what they told you about how your life was going to be if you ever left them is completely false. And in fact, your life now has the potential to be good and now has the potential to be happy when it could have never been before. This is incredible, incredibly important information. And I, I want to just add to that because when we're talking about narcissists and cult leaders and emotional abuse and manipulators, you know, it just brings to mind that we it sounds like we're also talking about sociopaths and psychopaths. You know, how are how how do they loop into this whole thing and how are they different from the average person? So how would you define what a sociopath is? But what is the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath and a narcissist, for example? Can can maybe let's take it that definition because you've explained what a narcissist is. So let's talk about what is a sociopath and a psychopath. How are they different or how are they the same? So it's interesting. They they have a lot of similar traits in that they will do whatever they need to do to satisfy their emotional needs, even if it means harming others to do it. There is this sense that they need to get satisfaction, whether it is that they really feel that the whole world is against them, or they need to know that people are going to fear them, or that they're going to be able to have ultimate power over someone and take them away from their whole life. What matters in the moment to people who have these personality disorders is to have that feeling that there is someone out there who believes their message and someone also that they can control. And so a sociopath is interesting in that they will sometimes be actually more available to their feelings than psychopaths and narcissists in that sociopaths will sometimes be against people because they feel that people have been against them. And they will often be nursing a huge amount of hurt and feeling singled out. And sometimes it is because they've been tremendously bullied for their whole lives and may have already been a bit prone 
to believing that they didn't have a place in this world. And it just exaggerated the feeling that they already had. So they will sometimes plan their revenge because they do feel that the world is against them. And so there is, that's why there's the socio part of it, because there is this sense of how they've been impacted by the people in their world. Psychopaths are people who are frightening when you meet them, actually. You'll get a sense that there is sort of not a lot behind their eyes, if you know what I mean. Like you'll look at them and not really see humanity there. And there is this sort of startling moment that sometimes people will say it makes their heart race because they wonder what is in front of them. And that they will be kind of capable of doing anything to anyone because there isn't that boundary inside that guides you because there isn't guilt and there isn't a sense of responsibility and there isn't shame. And there also isn't a feeling that you've ever done anything wrong. And other people's pain isn't something that registers for you. That is frightening. So do you think that's a learned behavior as a result of trauma as a child? Because very often when you talk to these, when you read stories or you know, hear about serial killers and you track back, there's always been some really weird childhood experience that's almost made, that they've kind of learned to become like this. Is that you? How would you feel about that? I mean, what's interesting is that there that happens more often than not, that it is through really, I think, systematic and repeated abuse, sometimes torture, mixed in with neglect. So you are tremendously mistreated to a horrific degree and no one is protecting you. And so you get the sense if no one cared about your pain, you're not going to care about others. What is also true, though, is that it's very small percentage of the population, but there are people who are born psychopaths. And you see in these situations with parents who are horrified, horrified by what their child is capable of doing without it registering in their conscience at all. And you'll start seeing signs of it often in how they treat animals from insects onto other animals, bigger animals, family, the family dog, the family cat, etc. And then how they treat people. They're very good at being secretive too. There, it often is tied in, unfortunately, with intelligence. So they can be good at hiding who they are. They know they have to. And so people are not going to necessarily know. And if, they're, if they realize, and I, I've seen this with some people, if they know they're not good actors, they'll just become more reclusive and secretive because they know they can't pretend. But they will still want to do whatever they can do just because it makes them feel alive. And I, I talked to someone who has noticed that he actually felt more alive. He didn't say good or bad, but he actually felt more alive when he caused something else pain or when he took the life away from something else. I mean, it, that in these moments, it really is like a horror movie. But yes, the, in a very rare case, you will have situations with families where they notice their children are like this and they don't know where it came from. And it is a rare personality disorder from birth. But more often, you'll see that it's something that grows over time because of mistreatment and neglect. And with narcissists, they are charming. And they are very good in social settings. And they know how to read people. And they're really astute. And they often will come from this place of not having gotten what they needed to get emotionally at a young age. Now, there's some people who will say, I had a child who was a bottomless pit, who I, I gave him so much and it still was never enough. And that is the case sometimes. And so there are some people who are more prone to narcissism and feeling deserving and feeling entitled because they have that inner emptiness that no matter how much love they got, it still was never going to be enough. 
And but for others, you know, they were left to cry for days on end or however long where they just felt they didn't matter. And they were determined instead of going into depressive mode, they went into a narcissistic mode saying, I'm never going to let this happen to me again. So as a defense mechanism. So yeah. in your practice, you've worked, you've worked with, do, do you, you've seen, have you seen change with people who've that you said that one man came to you who had the narcissistic, he actually admitted it. And do you see change? Can you work with these people? Have you worked with psychopaths? Have you worked with sociopaths? This is a big question and hmm. you've just got a couple of minutes to answer and we're going to have to bring you back again because we haven't even touched on the divorce thing and I think that's oh. such, a, such a relevant topic. Yeah. But just very quickly, because I know this is something that I feel like I need an answer to, mm. even if we just start the process, mm. can these people change? I wish I could say that a psychopath could change. I don't think it's possible. I think there can be a behavioral change, but their inner drive will remain the same. And so that's my that's my sense of it. And they can learn to try to find ways to control it if it matters to them to control it. Sociopath can sometimes actually change when they are able to make connections, when they're able to feel a part of society around them, when they're able to feel understood and accepted and loved and have a sense of meaning, they will sometimes turn around to a certain degree. They might still harbor a lot of anger and they have a long memory for anyone who has slighted them. And so they keep score. And so if they want to get past it, they also have to take people off their list of those they need to or want to get back to and, and back at. So there is more of a potential with a sociopath than a psychopath. And a narcissist will change if he or she can develop that high through another source. And so if they are able to feel good about doing good work or having their name on the side of a building or getting their Academy Award and that satisfies them for a while, they'll actually be more pleasant if they feel like they've been filled up. The problem is that unless they attend to the empty place that becomes sort of empty over and over again inside, then they will go back to feeling empty again. And that a lot of people in relationships with narcissists will tell me they feel like they're often starting all over again at square one to tell their partner they really do love them. They really are devoted to them. They really are the most special people in the world. And they have to start from scratch every morning. And that is exhausting. Exhausting. And I was about to say that's exhausting. So the person in the relationship is needing more therapy than the other, than the narcissist. So, so what you're often. saying is it's very much up to the, whether, whatever your label, they, a lot of these labels are comorbid and a lot of the words right. and things that have been spoken about, they, people are going to show them on, on a scale into various different extremes. But at the end of the day, I'm hearing you say that there's a lot of it's about if they choose to actually want to make the change, find the whole, the narcissist, forgive the past hurts and really reconnect with society, really want to learn the sociopath, wanting to learn to actually control those and, and learn empathy and, and learn they've got to want to do that. So there's a lot coming from the individual to want to make that change in order for them to actually change. Right. And so, and it does need to come from them. A lot of times, I mean, I have worked with a couple where there was a wife who said her husband was very big in Hollywood as a narcissist. I met them and yeah, <laughs> she was accurate, but he, he didn't want to lose her because he loved her and he saw how much she put up with and he didn't want to keep making her sad. And so there was a part of him that had to learn different behaviors. Without being able to fully transform his emotional self, he wanted to be able to do some behavior modification so that he didn't keep torturing this person who was so willing to love him. So he had a motivation to choose. He wanted to do he wanted to stop hurting her. So there was a change inside of him. He had a reason he saw, and the, that was his motivation to change. Rachel, this has been so informative and fascinating, and I would really love to invite you back again to talk more about this and also to talk about divorce. And it's been 
outstanding discussion. I've learned so much. Thank you for your time. And where can people find out more about you, your practice and your podcast? Sure. And thank you, by the way. Your podcast is incredible and it's on so many wonderful subjects and so bright and, and brings so much to the discussion and all of the discussions, all the podcasts I've listened to. So thank you so much for your work. So where people can find me is at www.rachelbernsteintherapy.com. I also have a weekly podcast called Indoctrination or in the Indoctrination Show. And also through my email, BernsteinLMFT, that's my license at Gmail, uh, or give me a call, 818-907-0036, and various places online and a YouTube channel, and you'll, you'll be able to find me. Oh, that's well, we're going to put all that information in the show notes so people can contact you and get information from you. And thank you so much again, Rachel. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then... I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.